Good morning and welcome to the JSET Institute Hour at Radio Veritas. I'm Pamela Moringa and I'll be your host this morning. This morning we'll be talking more about the Winter Living Theology 2017. Winter Living Theology are seminars that usually takes place once a year in winter. Uh, they are facilitated and uh, done by the JSET Institute so these seminars are taking place as we speak at the Lumka Retreatment Center. So um, this morning, we'll be talking more about them. And they have started already. They started on Tuesday the 4th. And they will end today here in Johannesburg as they move on to the different parts of the country. So um, this year's theme is focused more on finding God in addiction, which is a pastoral response to addiction and recovery. So we're going to start today's show by listening to a conversation between Francis and uh, Father Thomas Winston, who came to South Africa to conduct this seminars. And um, yeah, well, he has a lot of things to say about that. And he's a quite interesting man i've been there myself i've listened to most of the things that he had to say and then well later on then we will be having listening to a conversation i had with a lady who is also attending the seminars at the lumka retreatment center so she'll be sharing us uh, sharing with us a story a very touchy story so um now we will listen to the interview between uh francis and father tom So good morning and welcome to the Jesuit Institute Hour on Radio Veritas. We have with us Father Thomas Weston this morning. Good morning and welcome to South Africa. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be in South Africa. My first time. Your first time in South so Africa. So I have lots of ignorance and lots to learn. Yeah. Well, that's a nice way to enter a new space. Mm -hmm. So you are here to do a series of workshops for the Jesuit Institute on addiction. Yes. And I'd like you just to tell us a little bit about your own story and how you came to be interested in this topic. Well, it's one of the topics no one wants to talk about. Um, it's it's an uncomfortable topic. It's a frightening topic. Uh, lots of people have some kind of addiction story in their families or their, their, their social circles, and uh, we like to avoid it. We step around it. We use circumlocution and euphemism and or just outright denial and and nothing's ever wrong so i i was very much in that mindset uh until my own alcoholism developed very very nicely and well and i was a very sick person in my late 20s and um the leadership in the jesuit community in the in north america all had gotten a basic education on alcoholism the National Council on Alcoholism gave talks to groups of religious people and rooms full of bishops, and they explained to them that this was a disease. It was a treatable disease. People could get well, but you had to get help. Uh, it's not a moral issue. It's not an embarrassment. It's not a secret. It's not about defects of character. These are people who are sick. And if you had people suffering from diabetes or tuberculosis or or high blood pressure, what would you do? Well, you'd get them some help. So we had a new uh, a provincial, and I was his first alcoholic. And I had been in trouble for, real trouble for a couple of years. Um, but 
in trouble for a much longer time. And part of my arrogance was I would never ask for help. I'll handle this myself. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. I can figure this out. And that's how you end up dead. <laughs> so uh, an intervention was arranged by a couple of friends of mine. And we sat down and um, I was confronted with my bad behavior, my um, mood swings, my, my irresponsibility, my immaturity, all of which was soaking in booze. And I was put into a three-week treatment program um, in Berkeley, California. I got out of treatment on a Friday and started my third year of studies on Monday. Wow. So, um, and I was very raw and very um, uh, off-center for a long time. It takes a while to get, to get back on your feet because I was using alcohol as a crutch. Uh, it's a great crutch. It's a great tool. You know, if you're, if you're unhappy, have a drink. If you're happy, have a drink. If you're depressed, have a drink. If you're elated, have a drink. If you had an argument, have a drink. If you're being friends, have a drink. So without the crutch, I didn't know how to do any of those things. So I had to learn how to deal with stress, anxiety, pressure without chemicals. And that takes a long time. I'd never written a paper without a beer, which sounds, well, of course, you can do that easily. Not so. Um, I found I could write sentences, but not paragraphs. Wow. The, the thinking process had been impaired. And it took a while to come back to being uh, a larger vocabulary and more skillful sentences. It took a while. And, and recovery does take time. There's, I, there, there's a, a misconception that as... If you stop drinking, uh, everything gets better right away, and that's just not true. You might be very uncomfortable for a long period of time because you have to relearn all your skills. Um, uh, I went back to teaching uh, as a sober person, and it's like I had never been there before. I had to relearn everything as a sober person, and I found uh, I was greatly shocked by this, but I found out I was afraid of my students. When I was drinking, I never noticed. But without alcohol, some of these kids were, you know, smarter, bigger, faster than I would ever be. And there were more of them than me. And I was very surprised that I felt anxiety going into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I had to relearn stuff. They, they even had us, uh, well, in, in the treatment facility, they, they reintroduced us to food. If you're using a lot of alcohol you don't necessarily eat and um how you know vegetables salad uh i was kind of reduced to tomato soup out of the can which you don't have to take out of the can it's very convenient and uh, uh hot sausages and that's not really a balanced diet you know? and of course coffee and cigarettes which you need uh, so i had to learn i had to relearn how to eat I had to re relearn how to rest, how to how to sleep. I mean, it was a big readjustment. So there's much more to not drinking than not drinking. Well, as you're talking, I'm kind of hearing it's 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 rediscovering what it is to be human in every way. Yeah, uh, alcohol is a sedative, and you're pretty sedated. And I preferred to be sedated. I would prefer to have no feelings or thoughts and just kind of be asleep most of the time. That's still very attractive to me as an option, but it's not a life. 
you know. So if you're going, the language they'll use in some of the recovery programs is you have an awakening, even a spiritual awakening. You come back to life after being very shut down or very marginalized for a long period of time. Um, so you will start having emotions again. And you have to learn what happy feels like, what sad feels like, what angry feels like, because you haven't had much of an emotional life for a long time. As you're talking, I have two thoughts flowing through my mind. The one is the sense of how alcohol yeah, it worked as a dampener, and now you have to cope with the barrage of sensations, both mm -hmm. internal emotions and, mm -hmm. and things coming at you. Um, and also, just at the same time, I was kind of playing with the sense of in South Africa, there is a tendency to see issues like alcoholism as being completely tied into our socioeconomic reality. Mm. So there is a very strong narrative that links addiction to people who are coming out of more disadvantaged areas than more advantaged areas. And just what you said earlier about alcoholism being a disease, alcoholism not being necessarily, yes, there may be some communities that have more of a problem, but that it's not only in those communities that one would find it. That It's, it's an equal opportunity illness. You'll find people all over from every social strata who can develop a dandy problem. In the United States, one of the most admired women was uh, Gerald Ford's wife, Betty Ford. And after they left the White House, Mrs. Ford went into treatment for her alcoholism. Wow. And for a lot of elegant, older white women, it was a revelation. She had the courage to talk about this and her own experience. Uh, it can happen to anybody. I, I will be asked, um, people who try to be polite, you know, they'll say, well, how can a priest be an alcoholic? And my answer is, with any luck at all, you can be an alcoholic. Um, it gives you a whole new lease on life and a whole new way of of starting over again. I So I was newly sober. I was going back to Los Angeles. I, I got sober in 1976. I was ordained a priest in 78, but I had to go meet the bishop who was a lovely man named Timothy Manning. And uh, I went to see him face to face, and he knew that I was new in treatment. And he was so welcoming and so friendly. He said, you know, uh, when a priest gets sober and comes back to public ministry, it's like he's newly ordained again. Well, I was wow. brand new ordained, but but for a number of older guys who get into trouble, it, it, they get to start over again. And there's a lot of starting over. We encourage the starting over. One of the theories about when your your addiction kicks in, a lot of your emotional growth stops, a lot of your spiritual growth stops, a lot of your intellectual growth stops. So you have a lot of immaturity, and that's one of the things you have to deal with getting sober, is you have to grow up. Mm -hmm. And the, the cartoon is a, a father and a son are talking, and the little boy says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be an alcoholic. And his father says, Son, you cannot do both. Um, so you, you might, uh, like I started drinking regularly when I was about 14 or 15, got sober at 29, but in many ways I was 15 years old, uh, and not a very advanced 15 year old, lots of black and white thinking and lots of anxiety and a lot of running away and escaping. And some people, you know, get sober at 65, but they're 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So they have to learn how to grow up emotionally and spiritually 
And intellectually, you're learning that things are more complicated and black and white isn't enough, you know, or black or white. It's not enough. There's subtlety, there's nuance, there's variety, there's, there's flavor. And part of recovery is leaving the world of black, white, and discovering the whole world of color. And it's a much better way to live. So this the sense of engaging in a much richer world, although more painful and challenging in many ways. Yeah, it hurts. I just want to pick up the sense of um, how does one cope? So there's, there is this, this reality that it's not just about saying, okay, I'm going to stop being an alcoholic. I'll go into a three-week recovery process and then I'll be fine for life. How does I, I one... don't stop being an alcoholic. I stop drinking. I stop drinking. I'm still an alcoholic. Okay, so just tease that out for us a little yeah. bit because I think sometimes here there's a there's a there's still quite a narrative of you know if you can just get over this then everything will be fine. If you cannot have a drink for a year, you can start drinking again. Possibly, yeah. That or, happens a lot. You know, you haven't had a drink in three months. You should have a drink. Congratulations. The the way I understand it most simply is that it's an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. So I'm allergic to it. I'm also obsessed with it. Okay. So I try to control it, manipulate it, finesse it a lot. How many can I? Uh, so so um, I still am allergic. I haven't had a drink in a long time, but I'm still allergic to it. So I don't drink, uh, even though it's been a long time. Well, haven't I gotten over it? I don't think so. There's no evidence of that. Um, and appreciating the allergy. And that uh, I was told this very early in treatment, the first drink gets you drunk. And I used to think it was somewhere between five and seven. That's when I slipped into difficulty. But the first drink gets you drunk. If I don't take the first drink, I cannot get drunk. And I was shocked by the simplicity of that. And I also was sure there was a loophole somewhere. But, But a lot of early recovery is simply you don't take the next drink. It's like, you know, how do you stop smoking? You don't take the next cigarette. You don't play with that stuff. You stay away from it. And uh, there are there are some people who say, well, then you take a vow to never drink again. And that doesn't work for me at all. I, I just don't drink today. Uh, I can always drink tomorrow. I can do a lot of things tomorrow. I can rob banks tomorrow. I can win the lottery tomorrow. But today, There are certain things I do, and there are certain things I don't do. And that enables me to have a life. So there's something about really living in the present. you got to be in the present. That's a big topic in recovery is how do you do that? Because you can be obsessed with the past, nostalgic, or regretful, or remorseful. A lot of people spend a lot of time there. Or you can project into the future where you are living in fantasy or dread, you know, and there's no oxygen in either one of those places. You have to be very much in the present. And we're doing this today. And at the start of the day, numbers of us have uh, various um, spiritual practices on planet Earth. You know, you ask God as you understand God to help you get through the day sober just today. Mm-hmm. So it's not make my alcoholism go away or make my drug addiction go away. Today, I want to be clean and sober. And I ask the help of God, however I understand God, to do that. And I frequently may have to do this by talking to other people. It's not something that I do on my own by myself. Okay, let's tease that out a little bit more, the talking to other people. 
you know, what part does a supportive community or, or maybe even intentional groups play in that process? It's nice to be able to talk to someone who gets it, okay. you know, who's had a similar experience, who's had similar background. And there's a whole part of recovery. They call themselves the 12-step groups. Mm-hmm. The original one was Alcoholics Anonymous, but there's many, many 12-step groups. Uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous groups, the Gamblers Anonymous. They're, and it's where the peer group can get together and you can go and talk. And if you're having a bad day, you can talk about having a bad day and no one looks surprised. <laughs> they, they know. <laughs> you know. And you can say, uh, I've been thirsty all day. Well, a lot of people are thirsty all day. Let's talk about that. And then you don't have to, you know, you can get through the day. So it's it's discovering a, a peer group. And part of addiction is isolation um, and grandiosity and self-loathing. They go together very nicely. So as you enter the world of recovery, you find a peer group of women and men with whom you can talk and they get you. Mm-hmm. They, they, there's uh, It's radical democracy. Um, and you learn how to listen to each other, and you share your experience and your strength and your hope. You don't go around giving lectures. Um, I remember when I was a boy, some people who were very preachy about a lot of stuff, they'd be called, um, you know, there's nothing worse than a reformed drunk, you know, because there are all these issues and stuff. Um, you don't do that. You, you share your experience. You do not tell other people what they should be doing. And there's a lot of freedom there. That was the word that was coming to me, the sense of freedom, of allowing the other person to discover for themselves what it is that they need to discover. This is, this is what works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. And, and in that, there's something about being vulnerable that's really important. That Oh, yeah. yeah owning your own vulnerability is... On a daily basis. No one gets fixed, you know. I mean, you'll hear some horror stories about someone with 10 years or 20 years. They go out, quote unquote. Uh, They've relapsed. That could happen to anybody. You get a daily reprieve. I get a daily reprieve from the worst of my crazy. And I've got loads of crazy that can get me exhausted, angry, uh, embattled, um, and of course, self-righteous. And that's a hard way to spend the day. Hmm. Well, this is very, very interesting. Thank you very much for talking with us this morning. Um, And for those who may be interested in hearing some more, Father Thomas Weston will be speaking around the country in different centers as we go into the rest of the month. So we look forward to hearing more from you again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. That was Francis talking to Father Tom, who is in South Africa at the moment, and he is giving lectures at Lumkoro Treatment Center. You know, I find it very interesting that he is able to share all these stories about himself and his journey to recovery. And he happened to share them in a way that you could be listening. He's sharing something that is very important and in a way that is funny. You know, you laugh while you get to think about it. I find that very interesting, you know, that you can sit there for hours and you can listen to him and go on and on and on and on. And me just being part of that, I got to learn about different things, different uh, types of addiction, though I wished he could have talked about um, cell phone addiction. 
you could have maybe talked about um, social media addictions as we as young people we found ourselves uh, not being able to stay away from our phones stay away from our data and all that yeah well I'm just hoping that today being the last day here in Joburg he'll be able to talk about that as well so we're really looking forward to this day being the last day so right now we are going to listen to a piece of music by Margaret Riza. The song is titled Creator God.